<laughs> Kill him for a second. And by the way, I like, while while Mike steps away, I'm going to say this. Yeah, I'm all for the pirate story as well. So I have um, I have good pirate materials. Um, but you do. Knowing what you did, you know, did a lot of your studies on. I bet you do. I have good pirate stories. We we will. Pirate stories are coming. <laughs> that should be a T-shirt, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the pirate stories are coming. That actually is not a bad. That's a pretty good merch. You put this on the on the front. You like the pirate stories are coming on the back. <laughs> Take this off. Come over here. Take this off. The key unmuted and been remuted accidentally, and then unmuted. So this is <laughs> this is my, fav- my favorite. Uh, my favorite thing with editing, uh, Mike, is as I'm going through and I'll hear like, and I'll, I'll see that he said something. I'm like, what is he saying? And he's going, Otis, Otis. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. Like, like all right, a little silence over that. Okay. Like, Otis, shut up, Otis. And I'm like, I can't hear the dog at all, but I hear Mike you know, yelling at the dog. I'm like, God, okay. Check out the stars later. It's really trippy. Especially on weed, man. And I said, barmaid, set us up around that Colorado Kool-Aid. While you're up there, bring this big fella here a box of band-aids. Huh. I expected the Rocky Mountains to be a little rockier than this. I was thinking the same thing. That John Denver's full of shit, man unbalanced come on now brian that's pretty awful oh my god (laughs) he's unbalanced this guy is a lunatic these men lived in a much different time god we got some kooky people back in this time not obvious that we are professionals you're not paying attention we know what we're doing (laughs) but i'm serious can we start already and welcome to Unbalanced Views of History. I'm Brian. Bleep, 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 bleep. I'm just a dude who thinks dude. laws need to be grounded with a moral underpinning, like full emancipation. With me, as always, is a man who believes crimes should be punished, except when those crimes are done by corporations who he would like to sponsor the show. It's Mike. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best one yet. I love it. Very accurate. Very, very accurate. Uh, yeah um scrambling to write this intro actually uh okay it came out perfect um we are again joined by our very special guest colorado expert future baltimore ravens director of player personnel author of the (laughs) west coast fun and gun and shoot offense my very good friend it's garrick welcome garrick if only i had that kind of control it would be exciting at least i I liked inventing a new offense for you. I was like, yeah, the West yeah. Coast, the fun and gun, the run and shoot. I'm going to put them all together. I like fun it. And gun. I like it. Hey, yeah, the West I Coast, fun it, and gun and I shoot. it wins, especially with Lamar at the helm. Come on now. <laughs> so last time we talked about changes to the Western Plains region, and we finished on a hopeful note. The U.S. and Plains tribes reached a treaty agreement to allow 49ers safe passage across the country to genocide California natives. Everything was sunshine and roses for the California natives. 
So let's see how that turns out, shall we? Why not? All right. <laughs> Good times. Let's do some history. Okay. So Americans violated uh, <clears throat> the treaty at Fort Laramie almost immediately, and they violated it often. In, uh, in summer 1854, some 4,800 Brule and Oglala Sioux were camped near Fort Laramie in accordance with the treaty when a, visit, a visiting um, Miniconjo Sioux named High Forehead killed a Mormon settler's cow that had strayed off the Oregon Trail into indigenous <laughs> I know, land. Know that guy. I know. His name's High Forehead. It's hard to know. I know that guy. I swear to God. <clears throat> and they call him High Forehead, but his friends call him Five Head. Um, <laughs> anyway, so this cow, this Mormon settler's cow, strays off the Oregon Trail and wanders into indigenous land. And this Miniconju Sioux, who is not, you'll notice, a Brule or Oglala Sioux, the two that are camping, he's visiting. He does not belong to these two groups, these two bands. So his leader or whatever is not around. Anyway, he kills this cow uh, that wasn't where it wasn't supposed to be. And so the garrison commander at Fort Laramie, a guy named Lieutenant Hugh Fleming, talked with the Brule chief conquering bear about the incident, either ignoring or ignorant to the fact that uh, such matters were supposed to, according to the treaty, be handled by the Indian agent, who in this case was John Whitmore, a man due to arrive in several days with the annuity payment, which is why these guys are camping out in the first place. They're waiting Mm -hmm. for their, their payment. Okay. Yeah. Waiting for their bag. Right. So this lieutenant goes out to talk to Conquering Bear, even though he's not supposed to. But nevertheless, Conquering Bear said, like, look, I understand. And he offers a horse from his personal herd or a cow from the tribe's herd to make restitution for the dead cow. Something they are not obligated to do. I just want to make clear, like, the, mm-hmm. he is going above and beyond trying to, like, make peace yeah. here. The Mormon settler, however, demanded $25 cash instead. But they have no cash. They're waiting for their payment. They're waiting for their stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, basically the Mormon's asking for something that is impossible. Fleming wants high forehead handed over for arrest. And Conquering Bear explained, I have no authority over the Makanaju or the the Minikanju. Like, that's not my tribe. I'm not some sort of leader there. He's a visitor and refuses to turn him over because it would violate, like, cultural standards of of uh of um yeah. yeah i'm trying to think of why can't i think of what hospitality of like yeah. hospitality so like he has no authority over him and it would violate cultural norms uh and they wouldn't they couldn't pay the cash restitution so like again he's like I, i'm happy to give a horse or a cow like i can do that the next day second lieutenant wife. huh or my wife or my wife the next day Second Lieutenant John Grattan, a recent West Point graduate who's essentially waiting for command, uh, waiting for a command appointment, led an armed detachment of 29 soldiers and an interpreter, a guy named Lucian August, to arrest High Forehead. Now, a commander at Fort Laramie said, quote, there is no doubt that Lieutenant Grattan left this post with a desire to have a fight with the Indians, end quote. On their way to the camp, Lucian August became quite drunk because he was very afraid of the encounter they were going to have. Additionally, the Sioux generally did not like August because he only spoke broken Dakota and couldn't communicate in other dialects. So, like, he's not even a very good interpreter. Like, he sucks at his, he sucks at the job, and they don't like him. 
On the way to the camp, the soldiers passed by James Bordeaux, who owned a nearby trading post. Bordeaux advised Grattan, be cautious with, with August because they don't like him. And he said, go talk to Conquering Bear directly. Do not try to arrest High Forehead without Conquering Bear's assent. Like, it'll be bad for you if you do this. There were an estimated 1,200 warriors in camp. Again, remember, Bratton goes out there leading 29 men. So it's, you know, 30 guys and an interpreter against 1,200 warriors. As they got close to the camp, August began shouting insults to the Sioux <laughs> as soon as they were within earshot, calling so the warriors good. weak women and yelling that the soldiers weren't there to talk but to kill them all. And this this was the guy that has like a few guys with him. This is the interpreter. Yeah, and he's that's just screaming. Good, that's how good talking. he was. Yeah. At it. and so like, but of course, like none of the American soldiers like speak Dakota, so they don't so know what he's they, yelling. But he's yelling, <laughs> "You're all a bunch of weak women. These soldiers are kill you. They're not coming to talk." He's also like very drunk. Like, kind of that's exactly like, right. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's you know, the, uh, this is the uh, in the paille. He's very drunk. Peyote, peyote a little too much. This no, guy. just very drunk. Um, very drunk because okay. he's, yeah, he's very drunk. Um, Don't judge me. Because he's very, very, because <laughs> he's, he's very scared of this encounter. But then, of course, like he just immediately makes it worse, but that's okay. Anyway, um, rather than going to Conquering Bear, as Grattan had been advised, he and his men went straight to High Forehead's lodge and demanded his surrender. High Forehead said he would die first. So Grattan then went to Conquering Bear and demanded High Forehead's arrest. Again, Conquering Bear refused, explained the situation, and offered a horse as compensation. Ah, August continued to insult the Sioux as he translated, and it's entirely possible he mistranslated as well. Um, sure. Because Conquering Bear asked for no. James Bordeaux, that traitor, asked for him to come in instead. Um. You know, he's like, this guy sucks. Can you bring the other guy in? Because we, <laughs> like, we're not communicating very well. Uh, the Sioux actually liked Bordeaux. He had a Brule Sioux wife, and they trusted him. When Bordeaux arrived, he saw that Sioux warriors had flanked Grattan's men, and the situation was already out of control. So he went back to his post and told everyone to arm themselves. He's like, yeah, I can't fix this. Like, we, everybody grab uh, a gun and, like, and die. You know? Get ready. Yeah, get ready. So uh, he, he, to he told them a fight was fights a brewing. What guy with this TV show? I was say you keep talking about Bordeaux and brulee. Makes me hungry and thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little wine and dessert. Give me, give me a creme brulee. The list, um, my favorite dessert, by the way. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. Um, okay, so fights brewing, and a a nervous American soldier fires and kills a Sioux warrior. And uh -oh. both Grattan and Conquering Bear try to calm things down. And while he's while, while Conquering Bear is talking to his men, saying, "Everybody, like, everybody, chill the fuck out. Chill out. Everybody, relax." Yeah. Uh, another soldier shoots him in the back. Oh, Jesus! Too bad this isn't a visual medium because watching you your hands up in the air, <laughs> saying Conquering Bear, I'm just Conquering like, Bear. Conquering Bear. <laughs> so they shoot Conquering Bear in the back mortally wounding him he dies nine days later and just Oof. for the like you know that's a miserable miserable yeah. nine days you know bullet lodged in your back just oh yep. god anyway 
As soon as they shoot him, though, uh, the Sioux Warriors very quickly kill Grattan, 11 of his men, and they kill August, the translator. Excuse me. The other 18 tried to flee, but they were hunted down by some warriors led by Red Cloud. Uh, one of them got away, but he died from his wounds uh, like the next day. The warriors rampaged through the night, threatening to kill more whites if they came out. Uh, they rode out against the fort the next day, whooping and causing a fuss, but they didn't attack. Some of them looted Bordeaux's trading post on the third day, but everyone's life was spared. They just kind of, you know, uh, stole some stuff and knocked some stuff over and made it known that they were generally very, very unhappy that Conquering Bear had been shot in the back and, you know, was dying. Yep, yep, um, yep. You know, they were very, very unhappy about the whole situation, as <laughs> as perhaps they should be. Sure. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, they're, you know, the, well, the fact that one guy gets killed and they still don't immediately take all of their heads is, is really remarkable that like, that there's still a, there's still a possibility, even after one of the, like, you know, that you're still able to say like, look, that guy's an idiot. Like, look, he's, he's nervous. He's scared. You know, like, I know our friend is dead, but everybody calm down. <laughs> and that for a moment that is, is that, that they don't immediately destroy these guys is, is shocking. Anyway, Robert, Robert Williams going stop, or I'll say stop again. <laughs> That's exactly exactly right, exactly right. Um, so, on the fourth day, um, the the uh, Lakota warriors they left uh, to go to their hunting grounds, and Bordeaux was sent out with a burial party to the meeting place. And when he arrived, he found that the soldiers had been ritually mutilated in accordance with the traditions of dishonor. Uh, because they were dishonorable. So um, the soldiers were interred in a mass shallow grave before they were dug up and relocated to Fort McPherson National Cemetery and marked with a white marble statue. Bratton was interred at the fort before being reinterred at Fort Leavenworth, uh, Leavenworth National Cemetery. Nice. The U.S. press event, calling, calling it a brutal massacre, characterizing the soldiers as good boys doing their job and the Sioux as unhinged savages. They failed to mention the treaty violations or that U.S. soldiers killed one warrior and shot Conquering Bear in the back before there was any Sioux aggression. The Secretary of War, another guy you might have heard of, Secretary of War <laughs> Jefferson Davis, called the event, quote, the result of a deliberately formed plan, end quote, and he vowed retaliation. I only want to ask, really, huh? are, are, you, are you sourcing Fox or CNN? I, I can't really I was, tell right now. I was going to say <laughs> CNN there. Just gonna say it. I was like, this was probably their first broadcast back this then. Is, uh, this is this is they were putting is, the uh, slant on as far back as this. This is William Randolph Hearst and uh, Hearst and uh, Joseph Pulitzer, baby. Oh, I've heard of both of those guys. Yeah, well, William Randolph. I, Hearst, I have one of, of his statues. The, I think somewhere around here. Hearst, <laughs> yeah. Hearst is the uh, Hearst was the uh, the model for Citizen Kane. He was the um, he was the inspiration. Yeah. Anyway, but I love that Jefferson Davis, Secretary of War and future Confederate president, was like, this was obviously a deliberately formed plan. The way they forced the soldiers to come confront them when they weren't supposed to and shoot their leader in the back. The Sioux planned this thing. This is, oh, God, it's just politicians, man. Anyway, (laughs) retaliation, as it were, uh, came in the form of Brigadier General William Harney. You might remember from the guy who killed the Irish in the Mexican-American War. Brigadier, now a brigadier general, who, by the way, uh, Winfield Scott, 
had well actually I'm, I'm not, uh, never never mind I forgot I wrote that in uh, came in the form of Brigadier General William Harney the following year in 1855 Harney who while serving as a major at Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis killed an enslaved woman named Hannah when he beat her to death with a piece of rawhide. He was charged with murder because it wasn't his slave. So, you know, you're not allowed to do that. But he fled from hoping to move the trial into another state that would where he might get a friendlier trial. But he returned for the trial once he learned that some arrangements had been made and the, the trial would be heard by a very sympathetic judge. Uh, he returned. The evidence was overwhelming and clear. And he was acquitted. Uh, he was clearly <laughs> responsible. He even admitted that he did it, but he was acquitted for the, from all charges. That's fine. Um, he was General Winfield Scott, the head of the army, um, had him court-martialed and removed from from service. And President James Polk, uh, by the way, in the Mexican-American War, James Polk personally reinstated him and had him promoted. <laughs> the guy who rapes uh, 13-year-old Indian girls murders uh, enslaved girls with a piece of rawhide uh and and commits war crimes against the irish that's that's our guy baby Damn. the president intervened on his behalf now you're trying to make me out to be the bad guy yes i'm trying to make you a bad guy we're both bad guys we're professional bad guys i should also mention that one of the reasons he was court-martialed uh well one of the reasons he was he was removed from the army and court-martialed was because his failure to obey orders led to the needless deaths of of dozens of American soldiers in the Mexican-American War. He refused to follow orders, and uh, and it directly resulted in lots of Americans dying. Um, so he was removed, and President Polk personally reinstated him. Uh, and Polk basically argued he was only removed because he was uh, he was a loyal Democrat. So uh, you know he got got kicked out. Southern Democrats, man, sticking together. These Democrats have been mo- Oh, never mind. Not, don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, Southern Democrats are bad. Those, those slave owning Democrats. Not, no, not a fan. Not a fan of the conservative party. Um, like that, the conservatives that the Southern Democrats were. Um, Abraham Lincoln was conservative. No, 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 not, not certainly not by comparison. I mean, yes, but not by comparison. <laughs> not they by weren't. Comparison. They, the, they weren't the they weren't the conservative party, they were the progressive party. Uh, they wanted to progress past yes, 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 slavery. Yes. They were back then, definitely. They the weren't traditional. They wanted to progress. They some of them were called the radical Republicans because of their that's, radical policies. That's right. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, so so Harney was uh, promoted to brevet brigadier general back in Mexico, and in August 1855, this guy, this. Uh, this sterling representative of the United States military led a force of 600 men to track down the Brule Sioux involved in the so-called Grattan Massacre. Now, fully half of the Lakota in the area went to the fort as friendlies for protection. But the other half, about 250 of Conquering Bear's group, who were now led by his successor, Little Thunder, declared themselves peaceful but did not go back to the fort. Even though they knew the army was out, um, they remained camped near Blue Water Creek along the Platte River. They harbored several of the hostels uh, that the army was looking for, but the group believed they were innocent because Grattan violated the treaty and Grattan's men shot first. On September 1st, Harney caught up with the Sioux. He sent a regiment to flank the group during the night so they would be pinned between Harney's force and the flanking troops. 
The next morning, Harney went to parlay with Little Thunder. But during the parlay, several Sioux warriors realized that they saw the flanking troops and realized this was all a trap. The Sioux Uh-oh. scattered as the fighting began. Uh, a number of women and children fled into nearby caves for protection. Harney ordered that artillery cannons be fired into the caves uh, when he saw the women and children go in. Which, of course, kills many of them. In the end, 86 Sioux killed, half of which were women and children. An additional 70 women and children were taken hostage by the army. Uh, most of the U.S. press described this as a great heroic victory for the brave American soldiers. The highest peak in the sacred Black Hills was renamed Harney Peak after the brave general that fired cannons into caves full of women and children. In 2016, Harney Peak was renamed Black Elk Peak. Huh? It's not hooray for media. <laughs> so, but hold on. But in two, 2016, because of the woke mind virus, Harney <laughs> Peak was renamed Black Elk Peak because people were like, maybe we shouldn't still call it that after this guy. Up yours, woke moralists. We'll see who cancels who. <laughs> and conservatives collectively shit themselves. Um, how dare you destroy our heritage? The heritage of <laughs> William Harney. Come on. Soldier Come who fires on. artillery into a cave to kill women and children. A lot of people did a lot of bad things. You know as well as I do. If we start tearing down statues and this and that. Wait, wait. Like, your defense is man. a lot of people do a lot of bad things, so we should celebrate them? <laughs> no, not celebrate. Not <laughs> celebrate. What you don't no, realize is it's he, not lives, a, he lives in a neighborhood. Not. He lives in a neighborhood <laughs> called... Uh, called Hitler Terrace, and he lives right on Goebbels' way. He thinks it's fine. People did bad things, Garrick. It's fine. No, 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 no. Is Richard Gere's No, 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 no. It's not... Oh, no. No, 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 I'm sorry. It's not okay if Hitler did it. He's a foreigner. No, 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 no. We don't celebrate things. We're not celebrating the statues. They're just statues. If we start tearing down, that is what a statue is. Yeah, but if we start tearing down memorials and statues, then we should. We don't have to celebrate those people anymore. We should go right (laughs) immediately to like Freddie Gray and take that one down too, and any of the other criminals that we have statues of, which is basically everyone in history. If you go far back enough, has either owned slaves or been a war criminal. So. Or every president that you have the up victims. there, like, yes, <laughs> and we learn and we grow over right. time. We, right, <laughs> that's we're supposed to. But see, again, this is right. the difference. This is the difference between, between two hundred years from now. When are we going to look back and back. see the same thing? Exactly. <laughs> difference between looking back and looking forward. Yes. So anyway, I, I, uh, I judge I, for I, the time that they lived, not for the time that you live. That's what I. Yeah, Harney was a monster for the time he lived. Sounds um, like it. Yeah, he was a monster. <laughs> um, I mean, there were there were. I mean, in fairness, there were a, a few like media reports that were like. In fact, actually, one of the surprising ones, the New York Times, usually on the wrong side of history for like everything when it comes to big stuff. They like the the New York Times editorial board historically awful. Um, you know, uh, I remember very clearly the New York Times like. Like, yeah, we need to go in there and get this Saddam. He definitely has weapons of mass destruction. Like, the New York Times, always wrong. <laughs> but even the New York Times was like, uh, this battle actually seems more like a massacre. He killed a lot of women and children. 
non-combatants. And it doesn't seem great. Now, they didn't really, they weren't really sad about the women and children that were killed. They were like, this looks bad for us. Like, they were more concerned about the reputational damage <laughs> to the United States than the actual loss of life. But nonetheless, they did recognize it as a, uh, as a, a massacre. But most, pay, most of the press were like, this seems great. Uh, now, for the record, Harney is buried at Arlington National Cemetery uh, in a, a, place of, a place of great honor. So again, I was just there like a week. It's very, ago. it's very good that this guy has been honored. I think, I think it's wonderful. Um, we should, we should all aspire. We should, we should go to Arlington, see his, his tomb and be inspired by his story. Why I'm sure. There? Huh? I'm sure Why there's something there? about his story. Yeah. Why is he? Yeah, there? no, no. I'm sure yeah. there's, there's, there's good parts. That well, make it worthwhile. I mean, if he was a, if he was in the military, and I guess it depends on what he did, meaning how many um, medals he had, and if he died in service, because back then I don't think they were reviewing your uh, your person your personnel record as much as they well, probably would be today. It's just a more complete view of history when you look at both sides, and that's the yeah. part that I'm curious about. Why did he get there in the first place? It's a great question, and one it's a rabbit hole I should have gone into. Uh, except that after, well, so <laughs> I, I, I can't wildly speculate. I mean, I could wildly speculate that like in the aftermath of the civil war, I don't know exactly when Harney died, but I think it was maybe the 1880s after the civil war, there was a concerted effort to just like to try and heal the country. And Arlington national cemetery was, was one of the ways in which we did that soldiers, um, Confederate and, and union alike got buried there. And, um, you know, so to try and make it a national tragedy in order to try and heal the nation. So it's entirely possible that Harney ends up there partly because of this larger movement of trying to kind of uh, sew the country back together. Uh, so you, you know, there are monsters in in Arlington for a long time. You know, of course, they also segregated all the 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 uh, the black troops in Arlington. They they had them segregated because if you if you have a black soldier buried next to a white soldier, it would uh, pollute his blood. So you can't have that. So you have a whole black section to make sure that they're not close to each other. That's uh, true. Did, and yeah. my grandmother is buried on top of my grandfather in Arlington National Cemetery. And we, we, we said we can't have that because they'll be fighting for forever. For, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to visit this thing and listen to them arguing every time I come to visit the graveyard. So. And, and flagrante delecto for eternity. Yes. <clears throat> All right. So on August 24th, 1856, a pair of young Cheyenne men hailed a mail coach, right? Like a stagecoach near Grand Island, Nebraska. You probably know Grand Island. It's a pretty well-known area. Uh, Garrett, yeah, no or no? Not sure. Do you remember like if there's a city near there, like a big one? It's Grand Island, but it's, um, it's kind of, well, it, it doesn't matter. It, it's pretty close to the Colorado border and it's a, it's just, it's a relatively well-known area. Cause it's sort of uh, the there's Island that forms, there. When the, when, well, when the, when the snow melts come, it's an island that basically forms between the plats, uh, between the North and South Platte that sort of, you know, form this huge island. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, all right. So that's, um, it's, I I mean, I guess I'm saying there's probably 2000 people that live there or something. It's probably not very big, but, uh, there's a number of things have happened there. So I thought you might've just like, it might've just been kind of in the wind. Um, anyway, on, uh, <clears throat> these two young Cheyenne men hailed a coach near Grand Island, and they were part of a group led by Little Spotted Crow and Little Gray Hair, 
who had traveled east from Colorado to fight Pawnees, but they hadn't found any. So the two young men were sent to flag the mail coach in order to try and acquire some tobacco. Now, they were chosen because one of them was mixed race and spoke English. And the coach driver, when he saw them approaching, like the, the one has his hand up and he's saying, hey, um, the one that spoke English was like, hey, wait, you know. So he saw this and the coach driver panicked, pulled a pistol and started firing wild, wildly at them. <laughs> the Cheyenne sent back one volley of arrows uh, and slightly wounded the driver in the arm. And he like took off, you know, he like in a panic. The, the noise brought the leaders kind of from of the groups at a run. And when they understood the situation, it was all explained. They they beat their two men for their careless stupidity. Like, so what if he was shooting at you? You should have not. You shouldn't have shot back at him. Like, he's like, he's not going to hit you. He's just like, pow, pow, pow. You know, he's Yosemite <laughs> Samming it out there. You know, it's not. Um, he doesn't know what he's doing. So. Um, so anyway, so they beat. Huh? Do the voice. So, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Give us, give us your. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't heard Yosemite Sam in 20 years. I don't even think I. I, um, I don't even think I remember what he sounds like. I do it. Yosemite Sam. It's Yosemite Sam. Yosemite Sam. Yosemite. Yeah, Yosemite Sam. The roughest, toughest, he man, toughest hombre has ever crossed the Rio Grande. And I ain't no man be pandy. Now all of you skunks, clear out of here! But uh, anyway, as far as the, these uh, Cheyenne were concerned, the matter was resolved. They beat their guys for, for being stupid, beat them around the head for being stupid, and everybody returned to camp. The following day, soldiers from the nearby Fort Kearney attacked the Cheyennes as they were lounging by the river. They killed several, as 15 of them escaped, including the leaders. The soldiers took all their horses, destroyed all their lodges and their supplies. When the surviving warriors told their tale, the Cheyennes were obviously furious. They hadn't killed anyone, and yet a number of theirs had been killed. It's a whole thing. So they snuck back to their territory, um, and they killed a dozen travelers during like the next month in retribution for uh, before they moved to their winter quarters. Now, uh, when I say dozen travelers, mostly they're they're killing like stagecoach drivers and you know other like women and children. No, they're killing people in like professional capacity in a professional capacity, like the um, freighters and stagecoach drivers, things like that. Not just like they're not they're not. To my knowledge, I couldn't find any. I I couldn't find all twelve, but uh, the but what I did find were all like stagecoach drivers and and other like armed men, you know, involved in crossing. Anyway, not just right. what whatever they they would normally take women captive rather than killing. But that's thing over there. Bring me the women. Um. Well, yeah, because this is it's like a for them it's like a va- you know they're a valuable asset either for trade sure. or yeah. You know how valuable I said that asset was. <laughs> All right, snip, snip, snip. You said yeah. it right, baby. Well, no, I mean <laughs> but that's that, that, that's what they, no, I mean you know that's this we is had this true. conversation. Hey. G Money just had to just to let him know. We had this conversation, and, and my opinion is the uh, the female parts are the most valuable commodity on earth. Oh, I've and, heard your view on this. <laughs> and they will make, and the reason being, just as an example, if you just walk into any strip club in America, you see grown men just literally throwing all their money 
any night you want to see it. It happens every night all across America. And it's amazing. It's the power. The power of the P, I call it. Isn't there a, it's just like an SNL episode of misogyny? <laughs> 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 the woman <laughs> that's this week's misogyny rundown, misogyny rundown with mike <laughs> isn't a misogynist we, someone who we hates love him folks don't we we love we love his misogynist isn't there someone who hates women a misogynist fucking hate women i love women i love all the women Oh, yes, you're as, 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 the, <laughs> as the objects you're describing them as. You, you love them as a thing to possess, and that's what's... I know. Who said anything about possessing? Ah, never said anything about possessing. Indeed. It's... I know, I know this this is where my frustration with Mike comes in all the time. Because if somebody doesn't explicitly say something, he's like, no, they didn't say that. I'm, no, like, I'm happy to accommodate. I'm like, yes, they did. They did. They said that. It's, it's in the objectification. You know, it's, it's you don't have to say you're objectifying when you are objectifying. You don't have to say, I'm objectifying you now. Like you're doing right. the thing. So so you love you you love women, and now uh, that means you objectify them because you love them. I love women. It's a, they're beautiful. They're beautiful creatures. Smart, there's no intelligent. Good, there's no right answer to this. You realize that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm giving all the right answers, but they're not coming back as right answers. They're coming back as wrong. <laughs> and so, back to the story. Back to the story. <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, so these, uh, the Cheyenne moved to their winter quarters. In October, the Indian agent, Thomas Twist, met with a large number of their leaders, and everybody agreed to stop the violence. Thomas Twist is a really interesting guy. He gets involved a lot in this story as we move on. Oliver's um, uncle? Huh? Is he Oliver's uncle? That's awesome. <laughs> I like that one. That was a good one. He gives him more gruel behind the back of the hey, master. For all the dads out there, welcome. Go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So they all agree to stop the violence. Both sides promise there'd be, now, both sides meaning Thomas Twist, the Indian agent, right? The, the federal agent, right? Uh, and, and these Cheyenne leaders promise there'd be no more attacks. Uh, but it is true. These promises would be very difficult to keep for a variety of reasons. Now, many of the Cheyenne were angry with the United States for, you know, repeatedly violating the Fort Laramie Treaty and for Hardy's attacks on the Sioux, which the Cheyenne saw as unjustified. Um, I mean, they saw what they what happened to Grattan as completely within their within their rights uh, for a wide range of reasons. And um, and in, for the United States. So, okay, so anyway, so the Cheyenne, that's that's their side of the gripe. The U.S., in November, right, like one month after Twist makes this deal, what are you doing? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Can you hear me? No. Every, every step of the way. It sounds a little dry, buddy. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> 
I didn't think you could hear that. I was, I was, my dog was getting in my stuff. I had to go get him. Wow. Sorry. He was messing around on my clothes. I had to pull him out. Just, I didn't even see the jar of peanut butter. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, in November, Secretary of War Jefferson Davis ordered what he called a chastising expedition against the Cheyenne to begin oh. in the spring. Right? So, you know that's going to be good. Oh, um, they're done. I, I want you to go chastise them. Uh, Jefferson Davis, hero of America. Okay. Uh, finally, <laughs> by June of 1857, Colonel Edwin Voth Sumner led two companies of the 1st Cavalry to the Platte River Valley near Grand Island, the site of the Fort Kearney incident the year before. At the end of July, uh, there was a brief battle that left two cavalry and nine soldiers dead and four Cheyenne warriors killed. They had like a little skirmish. Uh, during the battle, Lieutenant Jeb Stewart, another familiar name, was wounded by a pistol shot by a warrior who was then subsequently surrounded and killed. Another private pinned a Cheyenne warrior to... Oh, sorry. Sorry. No one, I, I only include this story. It's not even important, except that I want you really to listen to this because it's very funny. Another private pinned a Cheyenne warrior to the ground with his saber after the two men had fought with like a variety of weapons... Mm-hmm. Until at one point they were literally throwing like an unloaded carbine at each other. Until eventually they managed, he managed to get the Cheyenne pin down and stick him with his saber. So this is, I swear to God, a cartoon where they're like, they're like f- firing, like firing pistols. They run, mm-hmm. they run out of ammo. They, you know, they they try knives. They they lose that. The tomahawks go. You know, they're trying to stab each other with forks. And then they're it's like, I've got an empty rifle. They're throwing it back and forth. It's Bug um, Bunny and the TNT. It's, I swear to God, it, it's so great. I'm like, these guys just like keep keep going weapon after weapon after weapon until eventually they're just like throwing an empty gun at you. It's fantastic. Of course, then the Cheyenne warrior ends up with like a sword through himself, through him, like pinned to the ground with a sword. So that's, uh, so, you know, so the sword, they, they get the sword back. So uh, it ends badly for the Cheyenne guy, but that's all right. It's a pretty funny story. Um, after the skirmish, Sumner found a small, uh, a Cheyenne village that had been like rapidly abandoned, uh, sort of, you know, while this was going on, like the, the, the village sort of fled. He ordered the buffalo robes, the lodges, the utensils, the children's toys, and the clothing all burned. Now, I mentioned the children's toys because he mentioned the children's toys, but he, he had his men gather up all the children's <coughs> toys to make sure they were burned on the fire. Just um, so you say the- buffalo robes? Buffalo yeah, you know, robes. buffalo skins that are sort of, you know, made into jackets. Oh, like co- That jackets. sounds awesome. I love, I'm a robe guy, so I mean, that sounds I know. Really <laughs> <sounds really good. laughs> yes. Um, so anyway, so he has all this stuff burned, and then he went and confiscated the annuity payment that was meant for the Cheyenne. You know, oh. the legal payment due to them, and he ordered all of the, 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 the annuity payment usually would come into the fort, and then it would be used to purchase things like flints, gunpowder, rice, flour, yeah. all those things. So he ordered all of the flints, the gunpowder, the shot all flung into the river. And then all of the other food, he, uh, the food that would be purchased by the annuity, he just like took for the army. <sighs> so essentially he's dooming them to no weapons and no food. He just pillaged uh, them. He pillaged hey, by them. the way, real quick, part of your intro needs to you to be cutting out him saying, I'm a rogue guy. <laughs> now, yes, yes, yes. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest with you. I would love to uh to I, I originally had planned on 
playing with that <laughs> intro as we got more and more sound bites and moving right. in. But then, uh, but then uh, somebody spilled uh, spilled a drink on my laptop. And <laughs> have to start over. It was. I, I I thought I had it saved to the cloud. I didn't. Uh, I'm not sure how I didn't, but I thought I had it, and so it's gone. So it is. I'm stuck with it the way so it is. I don't have the. Music, I don't one. have the mute. I don't have the music. I don't have the samples that Fine. I used. I because I, I yeah. made all that myself. I don't have the samples. Yeah. I don't have the audio samples of us. I don't have any of it. So you start building towards a new one and then reintroduce yeah, yeah. it at some stage. <laughs> I did, I derailed it. Yes. Yeah. You, congratulations. <laughs> you could. You um, could. We could say something like. Uh, like you could you could have almost like a coming up on this episode and kind of splice in a couple segments where we're just like a couple you know word tracks or something yeah like that's that, a good know, idea too a, yeah yeah little, little teaser, teaser for the next yeah, little uh, teaser. yeah especially if you get one ahead right yeah yeah if i can if i can get to that point yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, we're just giving you more work that's all yeah i appreciate it, appreciate it. <laughs> um yeah i appreciate it <laughs> Uh, so, okay, so by the end of the summer, after all of this, um, young Cheyenne warriors, pretty tired of the humiliation and abuse, um, they they told an express writer, we want no more presents, no dealing with the untrustworthy whites. We want no peace. <laughs> you can't the press, trust them. The press reported this, this event by Sumner, where he burned down an abandoned village uh, as a great victory for the United States and implied that the Cheyenne had been subdued. Now, this is really, this will be important later. This whole idea that the Cheyenne were completely subdued, according to the press. <laughs> Sumner, meanwhile, received word in August to send most of his men to Fort Laramie for an exhibition against the Mormons in Utah because they were uh, taking too many wives. So he had to go fight them. <laughs> for the time being, though, it seemed that tempers could cool at least for the moment. But to the newsprint reading public back east, their minds filled with imagined stories of safe passage westward. Anyone with cause to chase whatever possibilities they imagined uh, might await them in the last frontier now felt secure in their future imaginings. All they needed was a push. Like now they thought it would be safe, right? There were no, like this was it. The, the hostile, the hostile Indian subdued. Around the same time that Sumner sent his men to Fort Laramie, the U S uh, did a capitalism all over the place. Um, capitalism. <laughs> Did it? Did it? Did it? Capitalism. So, first, word got out that the British government had allowed the Bank of England to dodge rules about maintaining gold and silver specie on hand uh, to back up circulating uh, currency. No, real quick, you guys are you familiar with the term specie? As in, not like the not like animal, but like specie in terms of money. Like no, no s, just specie. All right, I was thinking the Natasha Hinstrich movie. Sorry. Hunter down. You created a monster, now you want us to kill it. We decided to make it female so that it would be more docile and controllable. More docile and controllable. I guess you guys don't get out much. She wants to have a baby. She'll kill anyone that gets in her way. So, um, when we were on the gold standard, or even bimetallism, specie means like literal gold and silver. So the amount of money that was in circulation had to be backed by specie, by actual gold mm-hmm. or silver, like held in the bank or, or whatever. 
species, not just gold standard. Just I mean, yes, gold standard, but like just in general, gold or sil- the gold standard, mm-hmm. but silver counted. Like you had to have enough silver and gold. They called it specie, like the actual physical money, you know, to back it up. So, so what happens in the Bank of England is that the government had kind of like not been regulating the Bank of England, and so they had rules about how much specie, like they had to have a certain percentage of specie on hand for however much currency was circulating. In the public, they didn't have to back it up one to one, but they did have to have, you know, reserve of, you know, 70 percent or something of whatever was circulating so that if, you know, so that they could weather if um, if people tried to cash in their money for specie or whatever, you know, as long as everybody didn't do it, they'd be OK. So word got out that, like, the Bank of England had been dodging the rules and they were way low. They had way more currency circulating than than specie kind of on reserve. Mm-hmm. And so, of course. Because paper currency doesn't really have any value unless you believe it does. And when people believe that, you know, paper currency only is valuable because there's literal gold there that you can go get, all of a sudden it caused a bit of a run on the bank in in England, right? And of course, Bank of England supplied all the other, a lot of other banks. So it caused a bit of a panic in England. Okay. So that news uh, that they didn't have enough specie on hand caused a panic in England, which of course ripples across the Atlantic. Because, of course, most of our, a lot of our loans are coming from Bank of England. A lot of the, you know, I mean, all governments operate on debt borrowing, right? So a lot of our, our borrowing is across the ocean with Bank of England. So there's a bit of a panic. In the U.S., had fueled a boom in the 1850s. But as the 50s dragged on, less and less gold was mined from California. So there was this huge uh, increase in added liquidity in the United States because of all this gold. And it fueled wild speculation, especially in railroads. Like people just have like all this cash, right? So they're like speculating mm-hmm. on railroads. Many of the railroads mm-hmm. that they were speculating on were never more than speculative ventures to begin with. Like some of these railroads people were investing in never had so much as a, a, a mile, like never so much as had any track or or any like locomotives or any train cars sure. or anything. And people were like, like the prices were the value of these stocks yeah. were going up, 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 up. So it was a bubble. And um, and so anyway, so you had all this extra cash, and then all of a sudden, as the, the the gold starts to dry up in California, and then you have this wild speculation, and uh, railroad construction had actually already far outpaced the needs of the day because it seemed like such a good way to make money. People were just building railroads to nowhere, or you'd build like two railroads that both bo- two railroad lines that both went from the same city to the same city, and it's like you, it's it's insane. You don't need to doing the exact same job. Especially when you're talking about like going from, uh, you know, from St. Louis to Keokuk, Iowa, one is sufficient. You know what I mean? You don't need two. Anyway, um, so because of all that, the, you know, these these uh, these speculative ventures fueled entirely by like imagined fortunes and vivid storytelling, um, there were countless like paper railroads. These speculative ventures, right? No infrastructure. <clears throat> Basically, the crypto of its day. Uh, speculation backed by nothing, by literally mm-hmm. nothing except storytelling. Mm-hmm. On August 24th, <clears throat> sorry, on August 24th, uh, 1858, uh, the New York branch of the Ohio, I'm sorry, 1857, the New York branch of the Ohio Life Insurance and Trust Company of Cincinnati, the Oliatcock, uh, mm-hmm. it's shuttered. Sure you do. Yes. It's shuttered <laughs> due to uh, embezzlement and shrinking assets. This one life insurance and trust company was connected throughout the financial system, and it set off a panic in New York banks, 
who immediately canceled payments in specie and called in millions of loans. So now, like, no one going to the bank could get any gold and silver out. Yep. Right? Like, we're not allowed. They, they canceled all payments in specie. It and set off the again? worst what stock crash. Again? Huh? What year was this again? 1857. Okay. It set off the worst stock crash in U.S. history to that point. Uh, and really, the first one that the United States experienced that was like a speculative bubble. Uh, banks from New England to California failed, and survivors faced mobs of people clamoring to withdraw their money. One financial editor wrote, quote, The American monetary system now lies before us a magnificent and melancholy ruin. State, end quote. State after state refused to release any more specie, and by the end of the year, the economy was in full-blown desperation. In New York, 40,000 jobless workers marched through the streets with banners reading, quote, We want, hung- we want work. Hunger is a sharp thorn, end quote. In November, the U.S. District Attorney called in federal troops to protect government property from rampaging mobs. The South suffered less because cotton prices remained relatively healthy, convincing a lot of Southerners that they could go their own way when the opportunity arose just a few years later. Like, they, because they weren't engaged in these speculative bubbles, they were like, hey, cotton's fine. We don't need the North. That's... Part of the calculus for the civil for them seceding from the union, as it turns out. The middle of the country was hurt the worst. <clears throat> the rush of settlers across the country, fueled by the optimism of the age and funded by the California gold rush, saw land prices skyrocket. On top of that, farm prices were higher from 1854 to 57 than they had been since 1818. And they would and it's higher than they would be again until the middle of the Civil War, which led farmers to take on more and more debt. The whole, live, the whole region lived by credit. Farms were heavily mortgaged. Businesses were financed by loans. Furthermore, most of this was done by notes from Western banks and based on the faith that those bank notes were worth what they said they were. The economy grew in large part because everyone believed it would grow. The New York crash soured the mood. The famed uh, newspaper man Horace Greeley wrote from Wisconsin, quote, promises are a drug and faith in human solvents, sadly, alloyed with skepticism, end quote. He further explained that those who needed money didn't have any, and those who needed it the least were holding on to it. Western banknotes were heavily discounted in the Eastern banks. Many banks refused them altogether. Thousands of businesses closed. One Minnesotan, looking around at the carnage, wrote, quote, the panic was a perfect whirlwind, destroying and breaking our ableist men, end quote. But as always is the case, the hardest hit were the mechanics and the laborers. Mechanics just meaning people who like work trades. Right. How does the Senate vote? Fuck the poor! Capitalism. Doing a capitalism, baby. <laughs> throughout, <laughs> throughout the Midwest, <laughs> shopkeepers looked around at full shelves while farmers looked at unpaid mortgages and laborers could only look at both from the outside looking in. Religious leaders blamed the poor, printing sermons, admonishing people struggling that, quote, by the sweat of our own brow, do we get our bread, end quote, and suggesting that the poor simply hadn't worked hard enough to weather the current storm. Workers knocked on doors, begging for a day's labor. In St. Louis, workers met together to demand a public works project. Two men were charged with vagrancy when they were found sleeping in a doctor's unused office at night. The men had found work it only paid food, no wages, so they had nowhere to shelter from the cold weather. 
They stole nothing and were found just with their small basket of crackers, bread, and peach jam. And they were arrested. The federal policy adopted by President James Buchanan was reform, not relief. He believed, quote, the government sympathized but could do nothing to alleviate the suffering, end quote. And so that's what the government did. Not a goddamn thing. You know what they need? You know what's going to save these people? Regulations? Capitalism. Capitalism. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Capitalism's going to come you know, back, baby. Lift you know them the, up. You know the best Make thing about... Make them all wealthy. You know, you know what? Uh, you know the best thing to uh, to save people from when capitalism destroys their lives? Capitalism. <laughs> capitalism. It's, sometimes <laughs> capitalism gets the flu, man. And this is what happens. And it's just you can't have straight arrow growth. This happens. It's got to happen. It's part now, of it. boom and bust. <laughs> now, I'm, this is live. I love it. Now, gentlemen, I have a. Uh, we're going to go. We're about to go down a, a bit of a rabbit hole here. Oh, um, here we go. We're, wait, we're about. We're about to go down. <laughs> yeah. All of, all of this. All of this is uh, is essential. This is. Uh, we're about to go down a real rabbit hole. So, I, I as we, we we got a little bit to get there, but like uh, this is pretty cool. So, okay. now the biggest problem with the Panic of 1857 was a lack of liquidity, right? Lack mm-hmm. of specie when the crash first began. Uh, and then, you know, many people were cautiously optimistic that the crisis would be really short-lived. Um, you know, they, they they had reason, in fact. Um, help was kind of coincidentally on the way when the crash first happened. Steaming towards New York in September of 1857, uh, there was help in the form of the SS Central America, a side-wheeled steamer, which means... You know, that, that paddle wheel that you see on, uh, on like, mm-hmm. riverboats? It had one of those, but it was like a steamship, like a, you know, uh, early steamship. A side-wheeled steamer with 477 passengers and 101 crew left uh, present-day Panama, it was then Columbia, on September 3rd under the command of William Lewis Herndon. And uh, so it had all these people in this crew. Oh, yeah, there's one other thing. It was carrying between 10 and 21 tons of gold. Oh, tons. That's a that's a target. Now they were the way they measured tons back then were short tons. So like Mm -hmm. ten tons would have been about nine point one tons today. So it's a little bit less than that in today's measurement. But okay, but still, kind of a lot of gold. Now, the SS Central America had a brief stop in Havana, and then it sped north along the eastern coast. The promise of liquidity uh, filling her bowels. Heading to New York. Don't tell me she sank. She got as far as the Carolinas by September 9th, when she was caught in a Category 2 hurricane. By September 11th, the 105-mile-an-hour winds had shredded her sails, the boiler failed, and she was taking on water. Passengers and crew formed a bucket brigade. As the eye of the storm passed overhead, they rushed to try and get all the water out, but they were taking on more water than they could remove. The back end of the storm pushed her up the coast uncontrollably. The next day, September 12th, a hundred passengers, mostly women and children, made their way on lifeboats towards two ships spotted on the horizon. And I wrote this kind of funny. They spotted these two ships off on the horizon, so as many as possible started getting in lifeboats trying to get there. A hundred of them made it. The rest died. Okay. Another 50, another 50 would be rescued by a Norwegian vessel 
uh, that, that they hadn't even seen yet. More than a week later, another lifeboat <coughs> with three living passengers was rescued. And three living passengers, a number dead, um, were rescued. In all, 425 people were killed, and the ship and the gold was lost. At Tell the time, me someone's found that fucking thing. Now, now, uh, at the time, it was reported that it was 10, 10 tons of gold. Uh, mm-hmm. 10 tons of gold on the ship. But there are reasons to believe that it could have been as much as 21. We're not really sure. There were at How least far 10. off the coast was this thing? I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you exactly, exactly but I'm going to tell you. Gonna okay. tell you. Now, okay. just to be clear, 10 short tons of gold at the time was valued at about $8 million. Which is Oof. close to close to eight hundred million today. That's a score. And of course, <laughs> it could have been up to twenty-one tons. So you know, we oh. could be talking about we could be talking about what one point six, one point seven billion. <clears throat> now, uh, you remember the captain William or commander William Lewis Herndon, Herndon, mm-hmm. Virginia is named after him. Hmm. He went down with the ship, uh, and actually, mm-hmm. two years after the wreck, his daughter Ellen married a guy named Chester A. Arthur, who later became the 21st president. Mm-hmm. This, was a, this is obviously a tremendous human tragedy. The financial loss. Yeah, uh, human tragedy. Yeah, and the financial... Yes, the human tragedy. <laughs> human tra- the, 400, 425 people died, Mike. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought you thought about the one... I, I forgot about all those people. I was thinking about the captain that went down with... You said the captain went down with, a, with the ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, just kept, I was like, all right, look. One life, 21 tons of gold. You see where his ethics are. Like, he would absolutely <laughs> murder you. For one gold ingot, he would murder <laughs> I mean, and he, wouldn't even record, ha- and he wouldn't even for hesitate. The, for the you record, I would have gone down I'd have gone down with that boat too, just just for the record. I, I ain't yeah, jumping I know. off that boat. You, I, Mike, you would have eaten the gold so you could be with it forever. <laughs> I'd have just like, it'll, it'll hold me. It'll hold me down. It'll help me sink faster, <laughs> and I can be and I can be one with my love for all eternity. <laughs> um, it's okay, on. so it's obviously it's a tremendous human tragedy, and the financial loss. Was mm-hmm. uh, was was significant, obviously, for your American tragedy, friends, massive as tragedy, it, as it both accelerated and worsened the crisis at hand. Right. Mm-hmm. So, before I tell you why all this matters, we're going to do this little side story. The oh, SS I thought Central, we were on a rabbit trail already. Well, we are. This is this is the yeah. <laughs> this is we like are. Inception. This is like <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. no. This, same, we're same, going to a fourth same, level. That that part is a bit of a rabbit hole that I went down. Because of this rabbit hole I'm about to tell you, but I included it because it's relevant to the, the larger story that I'm telling. This part is completely irrelevant, but it's just way too cool. So, uh, so like I said, before I tell you why this matter, I want to tell you a quick side story. The this SS Central America was just sitting out there with 10, 20 tons of gold sitting on the ocean floor. 1857, this was. People would look for it and fail. A lot of people, obviously. This is the kind of thing people look for. But in the eight in the nineteen eighties, a guy named Harry John, the heir to the Miller Brewing fortune, you know Miller mm, Brewing Company, of course, of fucking course, doing a series of wild, unsuccessful treasure hunts, uh, nope. using using money from, that had been raised by his charitable foundation, the Durant's <laughs> Foundation. 
which was worth 188 million in 1983, but just 83 million the following year after his wild spending spree. <laughs> uh, he was sued and found guilty, so they made him step down from the board because uh, we punish rich people for crime in this country. So they were like, "You can't be on the board anymore." That's weird. For squandering 105 million dollars of charitable donations. That was that was it. That was his punishment. There was no, there's no there's nothing else coming. That was his punishment. You can no longer be on the board. Um, for life, for life, no more. For, oh, for life, for, oh, well. for stealing, for for squandering 105 million dollars that people gave you for charity. You know, I mean, I don't know how rich people do it. It's very hard. It's very fair. Uh, justice. <laughs> it's very fair. Justice it's is very fair. swift and brutal. Anyway, his failed treasure hunts uh, led to nothing, but they inspired a guy named Tommy Thompson, an oceanic engineer at the Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, a Rust Belt city that saw its share of disappointment in the 80s, including the closure of a major Westinghouse factory and the Ohio Penitentiary, leading to thousands of people losing their jobs in the 80s. Thompson, while working, sort of while he was working on his in his spare time or whatever, he built an underwater robot named Nemo. And in 1985 and 86, he showed it to potential investors in a potential treasure hunt. 161 people and companies, including the owners of the Columbus Dispatch newspaper, all chipped in $12.7 million for the for this treasure expedition that he had in mind. Uh-huh. Tommy hired a crew, bought the boats, and headed out to the deep water off South Carolina's coast in 1988. On September 11th, now remember, the ship went down on, the, on September 12th, but it was incapacitated on September 11th. On September 11th, uh-huh. 1988, 8,000 feet below the surface. So, I mean, it was deep, sank. 8,000 feet. <clears throat> Tommy's robot located the SS Central America, a ship that lucky prick people had searched for for over a century. By 1989, they had pulled up three tons of gold and had only oh, and they'd only searched five percent of the site. Oh, you've got to be kidding! They spotted more nearby and expected <laughs> they could keep holding out, holding they could keep hauling gold out of the ocean for for years. The local press, which accompanied him on that first voyage, portrayed him as a modern-day Robin Hood. He was going to be the local boy done good, and he was going to bring vitality back to Columbus, Ohio. He was a swashbuckling privateer, and he was going to spread the wealth around a desperate, deindustrializing Columbus. Mm -hmm. But he was overshadowed by the Titanic, Mr. Jacques Clouseau. Did he find Titanic, or did... did, uh, Jim, no, the actual, the Cameron. actual director of Titanic James Cameron. Finding. Jim Cameron did not find the Titanic. He went down and saw Titanic, but he did not find. He it. he he was able to do more there than anyone else was. Um, I love sure, that Jacques sure, sure, made sure. it into this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've been waiting for that fucker to jump this story. Once you said so, 1988, and you were like, and then he ran into this guy, and I'm like, it's got to be Jacques Rousseau. And you're like, and then he ran into this guy, and he got this guy, and I was like, where the hell is Jacques Rousseau? I mean, it's 1988. Jacques Rousseau was doing every like deep sea venture there was. 
The prick finds all this gold. That guy finds all this gold. Unbelievable. No, I want to share it. There we go. And this will be included for the listeners on our Patreon channel. <laughs> all right. Can you see this? So... You see this picture? Yes. Yes, I can. All right. So they call this uh, the Mona Lisa. Settle down, Molly. Settle down, Mike. They call her. (laughs) They call her Mona Lisa of the Deep. Among the things they Uh, found, I was going to say it's the. uh, They found this one daguerreotype of the one of the passengers. Um, This is like we don't know very much about anybody that was there, but we know this one thing. So we know this one this one girl that was on the ship, and like her picture because it's a daguerreotype, which was like you know done on metal. It like held up. So, so there you go. Necklace there is that the heart of the sea on her necklace there? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not really sure why you're asking that. That's a weird question. Because that's well, that's I mean, what they were know. looking for in Titanic. Yeah, but it's not. It's also it's that's the t- whole point of looking it's for Titanic. Why are you saying? Why are you pronouncing it like such a weirdo? <laughs> Titanic. My God, can you can you can you stop can you stop trying to associate with like 1930s German stuff for just a minute? God, they all wanted to be Teutonic knights. What the hell, dude? Little Mermaid references are next. You know that's My what's coming. God, I mean, he's, he's like he's like. Well, Teutonic must be right. That's how the Nazis pronounce it. No, they were talking about the Teutons. They were talking about gin and tonics. No. Listen, I don't know. I've never even heard. Teutons. The Grand Teuton Mountains. Get a load of those Teutons. Sounds fantastic. (laughs) All right. So, all right. So, anyway, so I, yeah, that one picture I thought was kind of neat. Okay. So, on one of his return trips after, you know, Mm -hmm. hauling up gold, Tommy was greeted at the docks. Not by adoring fans, but by a lawsuit. The the 39 insurance companies who had paid out the original claim in 1857 claimed the gold was theirs 131 years later. Oh, my God. The lawsuit took a decade to resolve, eating into Thompson's gold and his time. Mm -hmm. In the end, Thompson and his investors were awarded 92% of the fine. Two years later, in 2000, Thompson's company sold its gold on the California exchange for $52 million. Remember, he's got 161 investors. Mm -hmm. Thompson claimed that he needed the money. He sold the gold because he had to pay all of his illegal expenses and legal fees for for 10 years of trials. In 2005, the Columbus dispatch owners and another investor sort of created a class action suit against him, uh, wanting a full accounting of the funds, claiming they never received anything from the fine. Then nine of his crew members sued, claiming they were never paid for their services. In 2006, a federal judge ordered Thompson to give a full accounting of all the gold. Six years later, Thompson's company declared bankruptcy, claiming there was no more money for investors. He was supposed to appear in federal court Uh, to account for 500 gold coins that he never accounted for. Instead, Thompson and his former assistant turned girlfriend, Allison Antikyer, took off. They ran. They they first rented a mansion on Vero Beach where they lived like squatters. They paid cash for everything. They never even turned on the power. They hid cash in the pipes under the building. 
They just basically just like I mean went full bore like just living in hiding. How much cash did they have on? We have no idea. No idea. Oh my god. The best we know is that there's five hundred gold coins, but we don't even know if that's the full accounting. The 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 biggest thing we know is like he kept because the 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 Columbus Dispatch was one of the investors, like the owners of the newspaper. They he was kind of obligated to bring reporters out with him. So a lot of it gets reported because he's got reporters with it. Kind of, if he hadn't had that, he probably could have gotten away with a, a lot of this. Anyway, whatever. Okay, so here's the deal. So he lived like squatters, paid cash for everything, hid cash in the pipes under the building. In October 2012, U.S. Marshals discovered where they where these guys were hiding, but they took off just before the Marshals arrived. The Marshals, oh. when they went into this mansion, they found a book about how to live off the grid. They found a dozen cell phones. And they found straps for binding cash, for binding stacks of cash, all stamped 10,000. So, nice. you know what I mean? Gangster. You know those straps that you, you, know, you put around bills? Oh, yeah. Whatever? yeah, they had the 10,000 straps. As of 2009, Thompson had an offshore account in the Cook Islands worth $4.16 million. But the couple moved into uh, the Boca Raton Hilton. They paid cash. They lived under an assumed name. And they were there for a year after the marshals tried to arrest them. <laughs> Thompson had cell, four cell phones on him. He was in a Lincoln in front of the hotel, like sitting on the phone in, in a in a Lincoln, you know, in a Lincoln, like whatever. Mm-hmm. He had four cell phones on him, and uh, he had like six thousand cash in his pocket. And when they went to the room, they had four hundred and twenty-five thousand three hundred and eighty dollars in cash, all total between him and and his girlfriend. He was then dragged into court in 2015, and Thompson told this like wandering tale about a self-storage facility in Fort Lauderdale, but he didn't have very many details about where the gold coins were. He didn't have very many details. His girlfriend, Antikyer, said she dropped off four or five suitcases uh, weighing, like, weighing like hundreds of pounds to some dude at a storage facility. She just gave them to him and left. No receipt, no nothing. She, she didn't even really remember any of the details. We now know that place as Mar-a-Lago. Yes. yes. <laughs> he, now, at her trial, she was sentenced to two months house arrest and two months time served. So nice. So no jail time. She was in jail for two months waiting her trial. <laughs> Tom, and uh, by contrast, he said the coins were in an offshore trust. And because it was an offshore, he actually got kind of. It was kind of funny. You read his transcript, his the court transcript. He's like, told the judge, he's like, that's an offshore trust judge. I don't know where the money is. They move it around. That's the point of an offshore trust. Now, Antikyer had said, she had said, like, she had been moving the coins, like, from California to, to Missouri to Florida to Virginia. She'd been moving them around for a couple of years. So it all kind of, none of these, none of their testimony matches up. And none of it makes any sense. There's never, like, enough details. <laughs> Anyway, so he says he has no idea where the coins are, but he did say he did tell the judge he believed they were his rightful compensation for finding the damn things. Yeah. 2018. Now, keep in mind, this whole story started in 1988, for God's sakes. In 2018, he he ends up he goes to court and a jury awarded his investors 19.4 million. And Thompson agreed to produce the 500 coins. Then in court. He said, I don't know where they are. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, fine, like, I'll, I'll you know, show up for court. And he's like, fine, I'll this tell you where they are. And he's like, ah, I don't know where they are. 
We're talking five years ago. <laughs> five years ago. <laughs> so now he in the in the earlier trial in 2015, he had been fined two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, but that trial had been like in appeals, whatever. He hadn't done anything with it. So this federal judge, which which was part of that larger thing, was like. He's gonna he decided when he said he didn't know where the five hundred coins were after promising to produce them. Said, "I'm going to hold you in contempt of court." She upheld the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar fine, and then issued a one thousand dollar fine for every day that he remains in contempt. This was, this was November 2018. Ooh. Okay, Ooh. now as of November 2022, he's still uh-huh. sitting in jail. Four years later, no. Tight lipped as ever. Now his <gasps> his original charge carried a maximum two year sentence. So four what? years later, he's still sitting there saying, "I don't know nothing." So he's hold on, is, there has to be a maximum on that that they can keep him. He's in contempt. Yeah. He's just in yeah, contempt. but you can't no. keep him forever. For yes, that, you right? can. Yes, you no. can. Yes, and and he can't appeal it because it's just the judge's decision. The judge could just keep him there until uh, until you know. They want to. Uh, how old's the judge? It's <laughs> a good question. But yeah, he's already served double the amount of time that he would have served if he had just been found. If he had just been, you know, been uh, prosecuted he to the fullest. Legitimately of doesn't know. <laughs> that's the thing. I know. What if the poor but bastard like, really doesn't know? We, th- this that's is the thing. Not. Even if, even if he, I mean, that's the thing. So <laughs> covered uh, while he was, you know, while he was pulling gold up was 174 ounce gold ingot. It was the largest in the in the world when it was found. And that was sold at auction in 2019 this one piece for $528,000. One piece. Also recovered was the ship's bell. It's larger than most bells of the era. It's 268 pounds and about 2 foot by 2 foot. It was given as a gift to the US Naval Academy in August 2021 and it was dedicated not even a year ago in may of 2022 it's displayed in annapolis next to the herndon monument that's on campus they already had a herndon monument for this captain that went down with the ship i'm gonna go see that yeah and so folks that's why you tune into unbalanced views for these rambling (laughs) bits of trivia um or at least I, i hope that that's one reason why anyway so i mean come on this is that the best like ridiculous story come on Dude's i mean just it's ridiculous there in jail. that he's that that he's still in prison i can't believe it or in jail that's unbelievable oh and i mean, I mean you would think he you think he'd be able to have the, the the most the best lawyers around that could that could spring him somehow but i guess i, I mean what the but i the part to me that is still the craziest part of the whole story is dude comes back from from like a an unbelievable find. And he did like a ton of research. He used this whole like new method for finding it. It's a, an amazing story that he found this to begin with. And he comes back to the docks and who's standing there, but like a process server, like right. the, the insurance company from 130 years ago. So, let me is ask you, this. you. It's did insane. They, did they, did they sit there and like wait for him to get the very last coin? And no, then... no, no, no. I think by the word, by the time word got out and then, and then in, like, these insurance companies, eventually somebody there were like, Hey, wait a second. We paid that claim 130 years ago. So did, did they get no all one's the record keeping is that good? 
Let's Come be on. honest. No one, <laughs> no one's record keeping is that good. It's it's insane. No, they did not get it out. No, what happened was they the did sto- not. The story was was in the press, <laughs> and they probably were like somebody probably covered it. And was like MetLife paid blah 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 blah, and somebody at MetLife was like, "Motherfucker, we- <laughs> so, so <laughs> 130 saying, years you- ago we paid a claim." <laughs> so are you saying that there's still gold down there? Yeah, I think there is, but it's it's like an, I'm not really sure what the what the stat. To be honest, I'm not really sure what the status is because um, I know I know another company went out and got like another company was licensed to go get gold. They know where it is. Um, it it is a it is a, a it's a a problem because it's expensive to get to because it's eight thousand feet deep, and sure. and it's spread over a long area, and so it's an expense. It's expensive to recover. But then yeah. uh, you have all this other legal stuff because, like, again, because you have these insurance companies that were like, oh, no, this is our money. I mean, and they did. And they got it. They were awarded 8% of the fine, which, you know, is not nothing when you're talking about sure. potentially 20 tons of gold. Hundred, Yeah. I, I mean, and easy. sorry, they shouldn't have been re- awarded a pen. I mean, it's sorry. It's right. 131 years. You, it's that's uh, spent cost. Yeah. Statute of limitations. Yeah, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's but there were other things too where like Thompson hadn't hadn't gotten legal permission to pull the money up because it it technically was like owned by uh I guess it was government money. And so there's all these like little legal there are all these little legal problems that are all that all boil down to like, hey, everybody has a chance to make money here. We can't let this like yeah. we can't let this random poor well, guy get it all. You, you know, you know who made the most money is the lawyers. They oh, must yeah. have been just eating the whole thing up. Though. They they walked away like <laughs> ten, fat cats. That lawsuit took 10 years. 10 years of hearings <laughs> with multiple insurance companies. What I mean, when he said that all of his money was eaten up by lawyers, he he probably was telling a partial truth there. You know what I mean? Considering that he sure. thought he'd be a hundred millionaire, he probably only had a couple million dollars left. I mean, I know I'm saying only, but like Given what he probably was it worth he, it. He's in prison, you know. It's like if he's probably looking back, going, "Wasn't even worth getting a fucking thing." Well, I get. I guess he's not in prison. He's in jail, right? Because he's not. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he although no, he is an inmate. Like, uh, he does have an inmate number, but um, he, he, he. I'm sure he lived like a freaking king for a long well, but time. It, it doesn't seem like he did because like he never really. It it took ten years before he could use any of it. You know what I mean? It was like ten years. Um, before he could actually touch it, because the the lawsuit going on. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, anyway, if if he's bringing the goal, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, you would think, think you did all the work. I do think this may be record time. You covered thirteen thousand years in yeah, that's pretty good. How, how long? <laughs> that is yeah. pretty good. <laughs> so, okay, so hold on. So I have, I have, I have to, I have to at least, I got to put a bow on this whole story at least. So uh, and, and get us to where we're get us where pointed in the direction where we're going. All right, back to the Panic of eighteen fifty seven. Let me. Yeah, uh, we go. The reason all this matters is that Colorado, the western portion of Can- of the Kansas and Nebraska territories, wasn't even called Colorado yet. The Colorado Territory yet. It was a pass through section of land, almost entirely owned by Cheyennes and Arapahoes, was about to matter a whole hell of a lot to the white folks of the United States. Right. Completely useless piece of land as far as they were concerned. But the Panic of 1857 and one other thing are going to make it real, real, real important. If the economic collapse and the illusion of safe passage provided a kind of westward nudge for white folks on the, in the east, what happened next 
was a spirited kick in the ass for many, many people. With tens of thousands of people out of work and desperate in the first week of July, 1858, in present day, the present day Denver suburb of Englewood, William Green Russell, his two brothers, six friends, and upwards of 100 others, panned 20 troy ounces of gold near the mouth of Little Dry Creek. Word of the discovery shot across the country in electric speed. Indeed, carried along telegraph lines from Fort Kearney and in letters and on lips of of people traveling by rail, stagecoach, wagon, and horseback. During the next year, more than 100,000 people would race across the plains just to Colorado, more than double the number that went to California in 1849. With the discovery and the ensuing gold rush, Visions of gold and horses were set for a full-speed collision. And gentlemen, I think that constitutes one full episode of the of the podcast. Unbalanced views. Let's try that again. <laughs> I know. <clears throat> I think that constitutes a full episode of the podcast. Unbalanced views of history. Is that episode number twenty? Uh, I think it's actually going to be episode 21, if I'm being honest. I love it. Well, that's a milestone. One time, for my people, one time. This is our time, this is our shine Yeah, yeah, uh, uh Musical vigilante, I pray they understand me I took my pain and then I turned that shit into a nanny I do this for my mama, I'm rapping for my granny I'll take a native story, turn that shit into a Grammy Musical